Genesis 27. I'll read some and then we'll pray. Genesis chapter 27, a lot of biographical material God has given us in this foundational book. And it's amazing because when I do counseling and I do a lot of counseling and have in the last decades, so many times I think of these stories and I think, why didn't myself, why didn't people just see the mistakes that God places in his word that people make and say, not going to do that one. And it would help us. You know, life is a matter of choices and decisions you make in life uh, so often depend on where you are. Genesis 27, in verse 1, it came to pass that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, that he called Esau his eldest son and said unto him, My son, and he said unto him, Behold, here am I. And he said, Behold, now I am old, I know not the day of my death. Now therefore take, I pray thee, I ask thee, thy weapons, thy quiver and thy bow, and go out to the field, and take me some venison. And make me savory meat such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee. Uh-oh. Now he was told by God which son would receive the blessing. But, of course, Isaac in his old age has other ideas that I, my soul may bless thee before I die. This blessing wasn't just a, hey, God bless you. This was a contract. This was a covenant. This was binding as binding as any contract we have uh, today that's got lots of paper and ink. Let's pray together. Father, please help us to see and to hear and to know and understand your word and your will. We thank you, God, that as we've been going through week after week the foundational book of Scripture, we have seen your hand, your mighty hand, your throne at work. And certainly tonight we will again. And I pray that it will increase our faith. And also, Lord, give us wisdom and discernment about decisions we make with our own families and our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 27, the events here about Jacob and Esau, take place about 37 years after our previous chapter. Isaac is now 137 years of age, and he, he seems to think that he's going to die. And, of course, the truth is Isaac's going to live another 43 years um, He's going to die at the ripe old age of 180. He thinks he's going to die for 47. We know people like that, right? I, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This is, I feel like I'm going to die 50 years later. So what was it that made him think that he was going to die at this time? Well, he's 137. That happens to be the same age that his brother Ishmael passed away. You combine that with the fact that he's blind, and maybe more importantly, he's sort of spiritually dull. He has little discernment during this time in his life. And in some ways, the same thing is true for his wife, Rebecca. Nothing illustrates that, I suppose, any clearer than this story of Jacob and Esau here in Genesis 27 and 28. I remind you that these are two good and godly parents. Go back to our study on when um, Rebecca was found for Isaac and so on. But very early on, they sort of played favorites with their children, and they're going to reap some of the consequences of that. Isaac, of course, especially loves Esau. Esau was the hairy kid, the man's man, the hunter, the football star, whatever. He was basically all the things that Isaac was not, and so Isaac's living his life through him, as parents are so often wont to do. Jacob, on the other hand, is Rebekah's favorite. He reminds her of a young Isaac, her husband Isaac. He's more meditative. He is quiet. The Bible even calls him, him smooth. 
And in addition, he was the one who was promised by God this blessing. And so way back again, as they were babies and toddlers, there was some favoritism going on. And that's always bad. And you know the story. Isaac wants to leave a blessing now to his boys. Unfortunately, note this, it's been 40 years, 40 years since God told Isaac and Rebekah that what? The elder would serve the younger, that Esau would basically serve Jacob. Unfortunately, Isaac has forgotten that. Either he's chosen to forget it, or like I, we said, he's gotten spiritually dull, and he, so he plans on giving his favorite son, his favorite son, Esau, the spiritual blessing. Also unfortunate is the fact that Rebekah overhears this conversation between her husband and Esau, and apparently that's because she's eavesdropping. You know, i got to say this, wanting to hear things you weren't meant to hear, meddling, shall we call it, usually brings into your life a responsibility and a burden that you were never meant to have. It doesn't pay off to do this, so don't do it. Fat, dumb, and happy. That's my motto. And just be ignorance is bliss, so to speak. But Rebecca overhears her husband, and she decides that, that now she's got to take matters into her own hands. She can't let this, this happen. Now, all she really had to do was what? Same thing we've learned over and again. Trust God's promise. Just believe God. God's on his throne. We don't need you to kind of figure it out for God. So chapter 26, look at verse, uh, chapter 27, look at verse 6. And Rebekah spake unto Jacob, her son, saying, Behold, I heard thy father speak unto Esau, thy brother, saying, Bring me venison, and make me savory meat, that I may eat and bless thee before the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to that which I command thee. Go now to flock, and fetch me from thence two good kids of the goats, and I will make them savory meat for thy father, such as he loveth. And thou shalt bring it to thy father, that he may eat. Remember, his eyes are dim, he can't see. That he may bless thee before his death. Now let me just stop here for a minute. So she's conniving. God has already made a promise. All she has to do is trust God. She says, no, listen, I want Jacob to have this blessing, so here's what you need to do. We need to be sneaky about this stuff. And you know what's really wrong with all of the events of this chapter and why this entire sad narrative even takes place in the first place? All you have to do is just look at what the characters, all of these characters are doing. And again, as I said, all the counseling that I've been blessed to do for the last 36 years, boy, the mistakes... The heartaches, the problems people bring into their lives could be avoided if they've just learned the lessons that God has given us here. And what are the characters doing? Well, Isaac, you'll notice how he's completely ignoring the word and the promise of God. And this man's taking matters into his own hands. Rebecca ignores the power of God. And she's taking things into her own hands. Esau and Jacob are both ignoring the will of God. They know the will of God, and they're joining in on their parents' schemes. And in fact, you'll notice that in the entire story, it basically consists of God's people trying to do something they considered a good thing entirely in the flesh. How do you know that? Just look at the details. Go down to verse 11 for a moment. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, Esau, my brother is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man my father peradventure will feel me and shall seem to him as a deceiver shall seem to him as a deceiver isn't that interesting he's more concerned that what his father thinks than he actually is a deceiver 
I'll seem to him as a deceiver, and I shall bring a curse upon me and not a blessing. And his mother said unto him, Upon me be thy curse, my son. Only obey my voice and go fetch me them. And he went and fetched and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory meat such as his father loved. And Rebekah took goodly raiment of her eldest. Well, you know the story. She's going to, if he does feel them, he'll feel his coat. Uh, If he does smell them, he'll smell the right thing and so forth. And so the Bible says, I want you to make some savory meat. Do you know that the word savory meat is mentioned six times in this chapter? Now imagine a single chapter and you see the phrase, you know, we have the meats or whatever, six times. What an emphasis. Venison is mentioned seven times. Eating is mentioned eight times. So you see what's happening here is this is all the flesh. Isaac is going to judge things by smell by feel, by hearing. Really a lot like Esau sold his birthright for a morsel of meat. And so now both Isaac and Rebekah are being guided by their senses, by their appetites. Esau and Jacob, by their appetites. Jacob and Rebekah use the flesh instead of just trusting God. 1 Peter 2.11 says that the flesh wars, wars against the soul. You realize that you literally send your soul to war when you first feed your flesh. Right at the beginning of of the foundation of Scripture, God is showing us the difference between the flesh and the spirit. And it's carried in the New Testament with Esau and Jacob later, as you'll see. And this is all you're going to see in this chapter. Human reasoning, scheming, choosing by feelings, deceit. In fact, notice how Jacob tells no less than five lies in one breath. Let's read it, and then I'll I'll delineate them. Verse 18, he came to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, who art thou, my son? And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. Now, naturally, he says, okay, nobody else heard this. Nobody else knows about my request, except that, you know, eavesdropping. Isaac said unto his son, how is it thou hast found it so quickly? Wow, that's some fast hunting, my son. So what does he say? I am Esau, that's the first lie. I'm the firstborn, that's the second lie. I've done according as thou hast, thou baitest me, that's the third lie. Sit and eat of my venison, that's the fourth lie. And then, by the way, my venison, that's the fifth lie. This was goat that mom was trying to make it look like venison. And then he tells that ultimate lie in verse 20. And Isaac said unto his son, How is it thou hast found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord thy God brought it to me. Wow. Lie number six, that's the number of man. And this is the boldest lie of all. And it all takes place in a chapter where faith and scripture and trust and obedience are missing this is a carnal family at this moment the flesh the feelings the appetite they're all reigning supreme what kind of family do you have and what's the result the result is verse 32 and 33 isaac is broken verse 34 esau is broken verse 41 jacob is broken look at verse 42 
And these words of Esau, her elder sons, were told to Rebekah, and she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said unto him, Behold, thy brother Esau is touching thee, doth comfort himself, purposing to kill thee. Because, you know, he stole his birthright. Stole it. At least he thought he did. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise. Flee thou to Laban, my brother, to Haran, and tarry with him a few days until thy brother's fury turn away. Hey, can I say something? Rebecca said, talk about being broken. Go there for a few days. If you know the story, you know that the truth is Rebecca will never see her beloved son Jacob ever in this life again. So much for conniving. So much for trying to do things in the flesh. The question is, why do we have this chapter? And what is the story all about? Well, folks, remember, we've been noting all along that this is a study of foundations. And in the study of foundations from the very first chapters of Genesis and the fall of man, we have seen that God has made a promise. That God has looked far ahead and knows everything we don't know. And he made a covenant and a promise that there would come a redeemer, that man has fallen and broken. And boy, don't you see this? Over and over and over again, we make the worst mistakes. We don't even learn from the mistakes. That in spite of man's failures, and in spite of Noah's sin, and Abraham's lapse, and Isaac's flesh, and Jacob's deceit, still, God is merciful. God is patient. He is long-suffering, he is faithful, and he is on his throne. For example, this man Jacob, he was promised the continuation of this covenant, right? In other words, the Messiah, the Savior, we know him now, Jesus of Nazareth, he's coming, he will be the conquering seed of a woman. He will be born. And now God has promised that he's going to come through Jacob, the supplanter. That's what the name means. The deceiver, the secondborn, yes. And yes, Jacob is a guilt-ridden man at this point. Jacob's alone in the world. His mom has told him to flee. He's fleeing for his life. He's away from his mother. He's away from his family. He finds himself totally alone in this wilderness. And the Bible says that he takes a few rocks. You'll see it in a moment. And, and he makes himself a place to lie down and rest his weary body and soul. He's on a long journey, this hard pillow now, a weary and uneasy conscience, a heavy heart. For the first time, this young man, Jacob, is all alone in the world, and he's out by himself at night. I used to work the night shift, and when I'd go to those cafes at 2, 3 in the morning, and these people were always a lonely people who cry themselves asleep every night. They long for a companionship that they've lost. And that's Jacob. And it brings us to what happens next. And when I say next, it's not just next in a story. Please understand, it is next in his story. Chapter 27, notice verse 46. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. What does that mean? You'll see in a moment. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do to me? She's like totally distraught. 
And she's heartbroken. And she's distraught because she's afraid that her, her son, her beloved son, is going to marry a daughter of Heth. Let's go on, chapter 28, verse 1. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. Now, it's obvious here, Isaac's coming to accept and embrace the will of God. Finally, concerning his son Jacob. Now, granted, this man has deceived his father. He has defrauded his brother Esau. And granted that Jacob has taken things into his own hands, he's now forced to leave. He's forced to leave because of Esau's wrath, but still, it was always God's will. We go back to that promise. It was God's will that Jacob and not Esau would carry the covenant God made to Abraham. And now Isaac's accepting this. Look at verse 3. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee, to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land when thou art a stranger which God gave unto Abraham. There's that spiritual discernment is back. You know, I've heard a few sermons about how Jacob had to sneak out into the night, fear of Esau's wrath, and it was hasty, no time to say goodbye and all of that, but that's not what actually happened. What actually happened is Isaac took the time to give his son a blessing and to give him some counsel, some godly advice, instruction in two areas. Note this carefully. Number one, a wife, and number two, worship. These are the decisions, both of which, as you know, affect a man's life more than anything else. His wife, and his worship. I hope every parent and every grandparent in this room or watching where you are will listen very carefully for a moment. With those two decisions, the wife and the worship, a young man cannot be too careful. Here's his advice about a wife. Go back to verse 1. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him, charged him, commanded him, and said to him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And then he tells him in verse 2 where to go and find a wife. In other words, by no means was Jacob going to marry a pagan. The Canaanite girls may be cute. They may be fun. and They may be interesting and really exciting. They may be whatever, but under no circumstances was the future prince of God going to take an unbeliever to wife. Right? So what does Isaac say? He looks to the home of his maternal grandfather he realized that there lingers there the knowledge of the true god and so he points him in that direction as we read earlier isaac wasn't alone in the conviction because rebecca came to him and said listen what good is my life if he marries the wrong girl you see by marrying a hittite like esau did he married hittite women you realize he effectively alienated his entire spiritual family. Rebecca was downright depressed over what he had done. I am weary of my life. What good shall my life do to me? That's what she said. It was in direct correlation to Esau's wives. Why? Because when a child of God 
marries a child of the devil, the father-in-law is going to be a problem. Right? Go back and look at it. This is how he did it. Chapter 26, verse 34. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. A grief of mind. If you're a young person here and you're listening somewhere, and if you're a child of God, a Christian, all you're asking for is grief. All you are going to ask for is grief of mind and soul for yourself and for everyone around you if you choose to marry an unbeliever. And you know, the only way to ensure that you don't marry an unbeliever is don't start a relationship with one. Don't date one. When I was a youth pastor, I used to say, Young people, your date will be your mate. And honestly, the idea of dating is not so good. Courtship, I'm fine with that. The very best thing to do is to let God do the choosing by always seeking diligently His will. Why do we make the mistakes of others that are in the Word of God? And I can tell you this right now. I can tell you without equivocation that God's will begins without, with marrying one of His children. For every young person. If you're a child of God, he wants you to marry another child of God. God is never for the unequal yoke. It's really amazing to me. A Christian woman, a Christian young lady, will be so careful, so very, very cautious about all of the material and physical things regarding her newborn baby or her children that are to come. And they will think and they will read and they will work on the best nutrition, the best and the cleanest nursery, the best pediatrician, the best early childhood education. They'll even choose toys that will increase the child's IQ, baby Einstein or whatever. They're very picky to choose the best physical advantages, but somehow they ignore choosing that baby's best possible father which has the longest and the most enduring impact. And in fact, for so many of them, they choose the absolute worst spiritual advantage by settling for some guy who's lost. And you know, folks, that's the greatest deciding factor of how one's kids are going to turn out or their grandkids and their entire family. And yes... Spiritually speaking, all you have to do is look at Esau. Look at his sons and his daughters. Just go through the Scripture. Look at what happens to Edom. What it becomes, and you will see the fruit of an unequal yoke. So again, here's Isaac, and he looks at the home of his grandfather and his grandmother, and he sees this heritage. No doubt about it, he sees Abraham's testimony of days gone by. And he says, Jacob, go there. Go there and seek for a wife. Jacob must not make the same mistake that Esau had already made. Go back to chapter 28, please. Verse 2, Arise, go to Padanaram. 
to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. Bethuel was Rebekah's father, Abraham's nephew. Bethuel knew the Lord. We know that he knew the Lord because in the previous study, three or four weeks ago, he said, this is of the Lord. How that, how that you have sent this man to come find Rebekah. So Isaac was willing to give Jacob his blessing finally. But most of all, son, do not marry a pagan. This is his, construct, his instruction concerning a wife. He also talks about worship. Go back to chapter 28 and verse 4. And here he is. And give thee the blessing of Abraham. To thee and to thy seed with thee that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. And Isaac sent away Jacob. You see, what Isaac wanted for his tough-minded, willful boy was simply what every spiritual-minded father wants for his child. He wants Jacob to marry a believer. Is that what you want? Matter of fact, is that parents, grandparents, is that what you insist upon? absolutely insist upon be careful about saying well my daughter's 17 18 i'm going to send her off to some public university and if she wants to date she wants to date why why would you have that mindset he wants him to marry a believer and number two he wants to see his son walking with god isn't that what every spiritual father and mother wants for their child so that again, Jacob's departure is a matter of extreme importance. It wasn't hasty or as empty as some people have suggested. And in fact, you know what I think? I think that knowing now God's blessing is on Jacob and he just quotes the promise about Abraham and the covenant. I think Isaac's not even that worried about Esau's reprisal because Esau can't stop the plan of God. Just trust the Lord. But you know what Isaac was worried about? Those Canaanite women. Look, stop worrying about, oh, the end of the world, and this, that. Worry about what really matters in your family. The spiritual decisions that make a difference. He sends him away. And there's a fascinating, I think, interesting sidelight in Scripture that shows sort of the impact of Isaac and Jacob's actions here. Chapter 28, look at verse 6. When Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take him away from thence and that he, as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padanaram. And Esau seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughters of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabajoth, to be his wife. What? Now follow this carefully. I've watched a lot of rebellious kids through the years. And, and we've all studied a lot of rebellious religions through the years. Did you ever under, wonder, A, why Esau did this? And then B, why it's recorded in the Bible? I'm going to remind you that Jacob and Esau in the New Testament are mentioned many times. And in the New Testament, they're held up as pictures of the flesh and the spirit. The lost and the saved. 
And you know, really what Esau does here in response to Jacob's blessing and his decision to go marry godly women is to assume, I'm going to do the same thing, except the other side. In some ways, it's like, maybe I'll get a blessing if I just do the same thing. And it might sound silly, but this is what cults do, false religions do. Jehovah's Witnesses, they think that because they go door to door, because Jesus sent disciples out two to two, that they're doing God's will or something like it. The Mormons think that when they make rules about alcohol and coffee and tithing and baptism, it's just dress up. It's dress up Christianity without regeneration. It's the flesh sort of imitating the spirit. It's folly in the eyes of God. So that once again, even in the stories of the characters here in the foundational book, you see illustrations of God's plan of redemption and Satan's constantly opposing that plan. And you see that God is calling out a people. It is a peculiar people who are not to intermarry with the lost. You see that the flesh cannot produce the fruits of the Spirit. You see that you must be born again, born into God's family if you're one of His. And you see that in spite of man's failures and man's flaws and man's foolishness, God's Word and God's work is right on schedule. Abraham made his mistakes, and God's plan went straight ahead. Isaac made his mistakes, and God's plan, now they suffered for these conse- the consequences of their, of their mistakes. Jacob, deceiver, made mistakes, but God's plan and God's will did, was never derailed. It's all a reminder that the God of this book His way and His word, beloved, is perfect. Go to chapter 28. I want us to close with something that's always spoken to my heart. Verse 10 says, And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night, because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in the place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on that ladder. Verse 16, it says, And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. You see, one of the very first lessons that Jacob needed to learn, and God was willing to teach him, and that all of us in this room need to learn and be reminded of, is what he just said. God is in this place. What place, Pastor? Well, this is wilderness. But if you really want to know, God is in that place that you work at, even if everyone around you defiles the name of God or lives in sin. God's in that place, if you're there. That place of loneliness where a widow or a homemaker or a laborer spends hour after hour after hour in some tedious task, or so it seems, God's in that place. The place of testing away from home, in some distant city or state where Satan tempts you mightily, God is in that place. Maybe like Jacob, you didn't know it. Maybe like Jacob, you don't know it. Maybe you're not aware of his presence, but here's why God puts us here. He's there. It's interesting, Jacob did not say, surely the presence of the Lord was in this place. 
you know, when I had that dream last night. He said, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. God, the Lord, Jehovah, the Creator. He's here now with me. Yeah, and furthermore, he's always been there. Jacob's confession in verse 16 is, I knew it not. It's my fault. I didn't realize it. Tired, lonely, homeless, exiled, wandering, perplexed. He didn't know that God was there. He says, but I know it now. This is the realization of Jacob, and whether you know it or not, the presence of the Lord is in that shop, it is in that office, it is in that kitchen, that classroom, that living room, that study, that hotel, that vehicle you're driving. Many centuries after this, King David would, would write in Psalm 139, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy hand shall lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. That's your God. You don't have to travel to Mecca. You don't have to travel to Rome or the Vatican, or Nashville or wherever. What happened back in verse chapter 27 with all that fleshly wisdom and scheming and deceiving? You read that chapter again, you, venison and meat and this and that, and here's what we better do. You, you recognize that those people, there was no realization by anyone that the presence of God was in this place. They were living as though God was far away. But now Jacob is starting to see something. God's going to change his life. Aren't you glad that God's in the life-changing business? You know, I'm looking at people tonight who are not the same people I knew 35 years ago, if I knew you. That's because God just, you know, he's willing to come down and smite us and work with us and wrestle with us. And Jacob is just starting to see and understand and realize, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. How different and we're going to see this later, perhaps next week. But, you know, he's going to name that place and he's going to go on and he's going to know that God goes with him. And he's going to have to relearn it. But how different tomorrow would be if the Lord Jesus went with you physically, like Jesus physically was seen by everyone around you and you could see him everywhere you went tomorrow. How would that change your day? Well, see him or not, he's there. The, the Spirit of God is there. And for Jacob, that truth began to change his life. Verse 18, let's close with this. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had made, that he had put for his pillows, and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. This brother, this man, this schemer, this supplanter, this deceiver. You know what the English name is? James. It's my name. He set up an altar. First altar won't be his last. How about you tonight? Go home, 
Look in your house and say, surely, of a certainty, God is in this place. Later on, as you know, he would come back to Bethel. And he would take another leap of growth because he would say, this is El Bethel. It's not Bethel. It's not, I've got to go to Beacon Baptist Church on Indian Town Road to see God or hear from God or God's in that place. It's El Bethel. It's the God of the house of God. So really, God was with him everywhere. And he is with you and I. In fact, even unto the end of the world. And God's people said, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, inasmuch as we continue week after week after week to see your hand in the macro and the micro, in the big picture of your redemption and bringing Jesus from the lineage all the way back, but all the way down to the little small details where people make choices and decisions and there are consequences and then people make choices and decisions and there are great blessings. And that the greatest choice, the greatest decision that we can make is to trust your word, is to have faith in you. And when it comes to our children, our grandchildren, we pray, we have the same grief of thinking that one of your children would marry one of the devil's children. Help us to be faithful, Lord, to see things as you do. Bless your people tonight and those who are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.